todo el mundo. Pero eso fue realmente... Welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the documentary, The Ventures, Stars on Guitars. This is your destination for all things rock, where the interviewees include musicians, authors, historians, filmmakers, and more. And now, on to the show. My guest today is Steve Rosen, a music journalist whose career spans 50 years. Steve was the West Coast correspondent for Guitar World magazine, and he also wrote for Guitar Player magazine, among many other publications. He's the author of books on Randy Rhodes, Prince, and Black Sabbath, and the massive tome we'll be talking about today, Tone Chaser. It's an incredible, intimate story by Steve about Ed Van Halen's life as seen through the prism of their 26-year professional and personal friendship. So this is part one of two. We have a lot to discuss, so let's get Steve on the phone now. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Stacy. It's very cool to be here. Well, I could talk to you about Tone Chaser for hours on end because it's such a big book and such a massive undertaking. But I don't want to give away too much because I think people need to read it. Um, you cover so much ground. And well, I'd like to st start really appropriately enough with the introduction because there are so many different ways to approach this. Um, what was your process in writing the intro? Um, very good question. Um, to be honest, I am friends or have a relationship with Edward from 1977 until 2003. I don't speak to him uh, after 2003. Around 2020, um, I had some friends um, say, hey man, you should write a book, write a book. And I'd been thinking off and on about it over those years, but really, um, I really didn't want to write it, um, to be honest with you. Um, I thought one, it's gonna be an extraordinarily difficult book to write, not not purely from the standpoint of the fact that it happened long ago or that there was so much ground to cover, but that I, I didn't know, honestly, if I was capable enough as a writer to sort of put on paper, to to, to put down the, the perfect words to capture the essence of who this Edward Van Halen guy that I knew was. 
Um, so it was all those things. So uh, I'll, I'll try to make this a short story. So um, uh, my cat, who is famously in the book, yes. uh, you know, wakes up at these terrible hours in, late at night, early morning, midnight, one o'clock, three in the morning, wants to be fed. So I go downstairs and I feed him and I try to go back to sleep and I can't fall asleep, you know. So uh, one night, instead of just trying to fall back asleep, I just go into my little computer room and I just started typing. And, and certainly I must have had Ben Halen on my mind because that's where it went, but I really wasn't sure what it was. I just thought, let me, let me just put down some ideas, just, just anything. And I started writing and um, what sort of came out were those first couple paragraphs from the introduction. And I thought, you know what, this, this, this is something cool. This is something different. And that kind of led me, you know, in a perfect world, you know, you start writing and then the writing sort of leads you. And um, uh, I kind of think that's what it did. So, yeah, I didn't know what I wanted to do, really. And I kind of came out with that first paragraph. I knew that I wanted a first paragraph to be an amazing paragraph, you know, like, um, you know, it's the best of times, the worst of times. Or, uh, yeah, it grabs you. you know, Hunter Thompson, we were somewhere over Barstow and he saw the bats. You know, I, I knew it had to be something great. So I just had like this little thing and I twisted it around about a sentence. The second sentence coming, and for those who haven't read it, read it. No, I'm kidding. But but for those who have read it, they <laughs> yes, understand read what it. I'm talking about. So the beginning was a little bit of a of a Tom Robbins kind of a twisting thing. Who who was one of my favorite writers. So yeah, a long answer to your short question. It just really kind of snuck up on me, and then I just kind of followed it and and tried to hang on really. Yeah, it feels really natural. Like you're talking to a friend who's reading the the prose so I like that and also cool. the approach that you handled with the whole entire book um I don't think it would have worked as well if you'd simply done an oral history kind of a straight Q&A what I really enjoyed about the book were your personal asides and observations and your notes on things that were kind of going on underneath the surface of the words um, oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, I, I it, was, it was really cool that way. So was that always the plan or did, you know, because you kind of, you talk about your feelings and you talk about what you thought he might be feeling when you were speaking and then when you weren't speaking. So was that always the plan or did the book kind of develop sort of like the introduction? No, that's exactly right. It developed just like the introduction. Um, um, I, I am uh, I am my own worst critic. And, uh, you know, I'm always re-examining what I've done in my life or what I've said or what I didn't say. And so, you know, I'm writing along. And uh, as you said, you know, under, under the surface, there was all this other, this under, uh, this other underlying emotional stuff going on. Yeah. And so I, I got to a point, I thought, well, you know, I, I, I need for somebody to really understand how I was feeling or how Edward felt when I asked him that question beyond this, this, you know, this memory that, that I, that I'm writing about. So, uh, you know, I don't know, somehow it came up with note, you know, also meant to be a clever tie in with music notes. And that's why some of them are, you know, the second or half notes or quarter notes or note by note, you know, mm -hmm. I thought that was clever. Um, and um, yeah, so I just, exactly what he said so I commented on myself asking him a question you know what a 
stupid question to ask him. <laughs> Steve, why did you ask him? Because as I'm listening to the tape again and I hear these questions, you know, and, and again, these interviews go back to, you know, 77 and 78. Yeah. Um, and honestly, it, it's, it's the first time I probably listened to them since I, you know, actually listened to some of those interviews to write the story. So I hadn't listened to them for decades, minimally. And I hear that and I go, oh my God, what an idiot. What kind of a moron would ask that kind of a question of Edward Van Halen, you know? And I thought, well, you know what? I, I've never read anybody else do that. And and not that I thought I was like breaking this new ground, but I thought I, I, I'd never read that kind of a thing before. I'm going to do it. And people are either going to understand it or they're going to think it's ridiculous. Um, and it just kind of became a pervasive thing throughout the book, me commenting on me commenting and me commenting on, on you know, maybe what Edward was really feeling. And, you know, was he fidgety that day? Was he smoking? And um, yeah, and you say you kind of like those aside. And, and I think a lot of people have responded to that. I mean, it, it was really me trying to be as honest as I possibly could. I mean, I could have left those bits out and you know, pretend that I, you know, had asked them all these wonderful questions over the years, but they were, there were some stupid things I said. And, you know, I wanted people to kind of sit there with me and, and see what that's like, you know, fidgeting in your own skin when Edward Van Halen is, you know, sitting two feet away and, you know, looking at you kind of strangely. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really gives you a sense of the, of what it felt like to do those interviews and that you really had a progression from when he was basically unknown to being yeah. one of the most famous guitarist in the world. But I want to kind of circle back a little bit and ask you how you got your start as a music journalist. So that was a confluence of several things. One, I was always an avid reader. Um, I was always reading books and novels and John Steinbeck was my favorite writer. Um, I always loved to write, you know, I love writing like high school, you know, papers, you know, for, you know, history class and stuff. I love doing that stuff. Um, I love music and I love guitar. I, I was a guitar player, started playing very young. And um, so at a point in time, I thought, well, you know, music journalism, that kind of combines all those things. Um, I started writing for my high school newspaper uh, as a senior, a Culver City Centurion. I had a little column, and as the logo, I had the uh, the Woodstock logo, you know, where the dove is sitting on the guitar neck. Oh yeah. Um, I thought I was so hip doing that, you know. And so I would I would go out and and actually I I'd, I'd review shows. I would send out letters to all these clubs, I, I, you know, on. Uh, on Centurion Stationery. Hi, I'm, my name is Steve Rosen, and I'm the entertainment editor for the Centurion, and 1,700 students go to the school, and, you know, they could all be, you know, possible, you know, patrons at your club, you know, could I come and review your shows for my paper? And all these um, uh, clubs responded to Whiskey, um, said, yeah, come whenever you want, just, just show us the letter. Um, uh, there's a place called the Ice House out in Pasadena, uh, which probably uh, wasn't far from where Edward lived. Um, uh, who else? Uh, the Golden Bear. I mean, all these clubs, you know, are, are long gone. But, but back in the day, they were amazing. I mean, um, you know, the Ice House. I mean, you know, I saw Stephen Tong there, you know, doing their routines and, you know, the up and smoke stuff. And, you know, Steve Martin with, the you know, the arrow through the head and playing the, oh, the, wow. the banjo. Yeah, before these guys were, were anybody. Um, 
Um, uh, so, so I was writing these reviews um, following high school. Uh, I went to UCLA. Um, I thought, you know, I'm going to pursue English a little more, you know, get my writing stuff a little bit together. And so I, I, I took some classes and that was a nightmare of epic proportions. Um, <laughs> wow. You know, man, I, I hated every minute of that. <laughs> I write about it famously in the book. And um, I actually um, uh, wrote for the Daily Bruin, who had some really amazing writers. There was a music writer there named Stan Berkowitz, and uh, he was amazing. So I wanted to write music stuff. And they said, well, that's kind of covered. But, you know, do you want to re review like live stage plays and stuff? I go, sure, anything, you know. I didn't know anything about live stage plays. But, um, you know, I was writing for the Bruin. I was getting my little byline. And my English, this English teacher, you know, I, I would walk in and he'd be reading a copy of the Bruin. And I'm thinking he's going to say something nice about maybe he's done my review. And he just kind of looks at me and glares at me and gives me this hard stare and would later tell me that you're, you know, you're not a very good writer. You're not as good as you think you are. And um, I thought, okay. And I, I left UCLA after a year. Went to England with my with my buddy, my high school buddy, and we hitchhiked around England and Europe. Hmm. Um, I had met this guy from the LA Star. The LA Star was like a little local softcore porn newspaper, and I say softcore porn because in the back of it, you you would buy that that little newspaper so you could look at the get the massage ad, right, and go and <laughs> okay. book a massage. It wasn't like it was hardcore, you know, naked, nasty stuff. But that's why you bought that. Right. Well, I remember some of the racy right? ads in the back it. of rock magazines back in the day. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You certainly didn't write, you didn't buy the LA Star to go uh, um, be entertained by the uh, music writing, you know, the editorials in there. So anyway, this guy, Mark Yandel, had addresses of all of these English publicists. And I, at first I thought, you know, th there's no way, they're probably fake. So anyway, I'm with my friend, we're in the, U the UK, we're literally sleeping in Hyde Park. I started making these phone calls. And I know one of your questions coming up, Stacey, I looked at it, who was like the first famous person I ever interviewed? Yeah. The first famous person I ever interviewed was Joe Cocker. Wow, and really? It was unbelievable. While I'm there with my buddy, I had brought my cassette player with me. How I had the foresight to do that uh, is beyond me. And uh, I, I remember the publisher's name was Max Clifford, and I called him. And, you know, he embraced me like I was, you know, a feature writer for Rolling Stone. I was just, I, I, I could not believe it. He goes, oh, you want to come interview Joe Cocker? I go, you're kidding. He goes, no. So the next day I walk in and there's Joe Cocker. And I'm terrified. I, I don't know what to ask him. I mean, I knew about Joe Cocker. I love the Grease band, you know, but it's like, you know, Joe, you know, I mean, I don't even know what I asked him. So I do the interview and... You talk about anecdotal stuff. I, I, I relive this moment and I want to shoot myself. Thinking, well, maybe I'll do a couple more interviews and, you know, that'll be my music journalism career. Certainly, I'll, I'm never going to be able to make a living at this. You know, I'm never going to interview anybody else. So I had an interview lined up with a group, another publicist. Um, uh, what were they called? Oh, Dental Giants. Um, uh, who were this amazing prog band? Oh, and yeah. what and what did I do? I recorded over the Joe Cockerman. Oh no! Because I, I well, one, I thought I'm not, I'm not, I'm never going to do an interview. And two, it's like 
how am I going to go buy another cassette for a dollar fifty? I mean, you know, it's so dumb. And I then I ultimately recorded over the Gentle Giant interview. To make a long story short, I met these people. Um, uh, I was sending stories back to the LA Star. They were printing them. So you come back and and you try to connect the dots. So I reached out to Cream and Circus, guitar player, Rolling Stone. Hi, you know, I've written for the LA Star and, you know, I'd love to write for you, blah, blah, blah. And you get rejections, obviously, from everybody. I still have all those rejections, slips and letters and stuff. And, um, but, you know, you, you know, youth is uh, dumb, stupid, and blind, you know, you, 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 you forge, forge forward. And ultimately, you know, I, I got a little thing printed in the, in the Los Angeles Free Press, which is a very hip underground newspaper at the time. I mean, you know, there was like the, the, the Free Press bookstore, which is like up in the Fairfax district of like, like all the Orthodox Jews were and, you know, all the black light posters and the, you know, political books. I mean, I love going there. And so I had a little review printed there. And then I think I had something printed, in, you know, cream and circus. Uh, ultimately, I start writing for Guitar Player in December 73. Death Beck is my first story. And it just it just grows from there. Um, but I cringe when I think of what I did to those first interviews. My God, you know, um, yeah. Live and learn. That's why it's an expression, right? Hopefully I've lived and learned. I hope <laughs> Yeah. Well, you mentioned the Ice House and a couple of other maybe lesser known clubs as opposed yeah. to, say, the Whiskey or the Troubadour. And I really yeah. enjoyed reading your stories about Gazaris in Tone Chaser. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, anyone living in L.A. in the 80s remembers the godfather of the Sunset Strip with his white suit and his radio ads. And um, But for those who may not know, can you give us a short rundown on that venue and how Van Halen fit into the scene there? Van Halen had been playing backyard parties in Pasadena. You know, literally, they announced that Van Halen's playing at a backyard party. They, they'd charge $5 to get in, and they have a keg of beer. And 500 people would show up to these parties. They graduated to putting on their own shows at the Pasadena um, City College um, uh, and, and drawing thousands of people. So they're playing basically clubs, sort of semi-local to Pasadena. Pasadena is about um, 45 minutes um, uh, kind of east of Hollywood. So they were playing all those clubs. To play up on the Sunset Strip, the Whiskey, um, uh, you know, even Gazzari's, Starwood, which was sort of on Santa Monica Boulevard, just off of this strip. Um, you know, I mean, you had to be a pretty heavy band. Because, I mean, at the time, the Whiskey was really the only club, um, probably one of the only clubs in the country where, you know, bigger bands and certainly like all the English bands coming over could play because no one knew who these bands were. Nobody knew who Zeppelin was when the first yeah. record came out. So, right? So Zeppelin played the Whiskey and, uh, oh, my God, everybody, uh, Iron Butterfly and Alice Cooper. And um, so um, Van Halen finally graduates to... Um, playing, and I'm trying to get my chronology right. Um, I think they they started playing Gazaris, and then they went to the Starwood, and then it was the Whiskey. So Gazari was basically a um, um, it was it, it was mainly a dance club. You would go there to dance, um, and they had you know the Gazaris dancers, and you know yeah, Bill Gazari was uh, 
you know, kind of a wannabe gangster godfather, you know, who talk like that. You know, but he was a colorful guy and yeah, he had a very... lot of fans, you know, yeah, coming through there. I mean, Iron Butterfly and um, to Bill's chagrin, what happened is as soon as the bands got big, they'd leave him in and move literally down the street. It was about, I don't know, half a mile away to the whiskey, you know, and he, you know, he wanted to know why didn't they stay with me, you know. Um, but yeah, so, so Ben Halen, literally, I think Ed told me, all right, I knew about it. Uh, Van Halen had to uh, audition there like like I don't know four times or six times um, because they weren't they weren't playing dance music you know uh, they were playing you know probably you know stuff by Black Sabbath and you know ZZ Top stuff and you know they had to kind of learn dance stuff and ultimately did you know um, uh, some stuff by James Brown you know kind of more more dance stuff and uh, Bill loved him. And I think Bill really recognized the potential. And then, you know, it comes to that point in time when, when Van Halen outgrows Guzari's. And I write about that. And, you know, Bill was upset, you know. And Ed said, you know, <laughs> we weren't going to stay. And, and you know, I, I guess Bill had posited the, the idea of maybe coming back to do a live record. And Ed said, we weren't going to go back and record a live record. But, but certainly they were a springboard for Van Halen. And a lot of other bands. Um, you know, it's funny. I think I'd only been there maybe once. Uh, really? Twice. I never saw Van Halen there. Oh, it, yeah. It, well, for yeah, those you know, who may not know, it was the Sunset Strip back then was within a few blocks of each other. You started more towards Beverly Hills with Gazaris. Then you had the Rainbow. Then you had the Roxy. And then the Whiskey. So it was exactly. like this kind of really magical place. Exactly. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Um, fun days back then, for sure. Yeah, so so Van Halen, you know, moving from, uh, you know, backyard parties to the Pigazars, I mean, that was that was a big thing for them. Um, yeah, yeah, and it got them uh, a fan base in Hollywood. Um, now, where you said you didn't see them perform at Gazaris. So what were some of the clubs that you did see Van Halen perform at? And did you have a favorite club? back in the day well you know as strange as it sounds i had never seen van halen perform before meeting edward in june 77 which okay. is strange because they're playing the starwood and the whiskey and i i was at the starwood and the whiskey four times a week i mean how i miss them i'm, I'm just not quite sure i didn't uh see them at the whiskey until after I interviewed him, excuse me, uh, in June 77. Um, uh, so I, you know, I wish I could say, yeah, I was, you know, going out to all these clubs and seeing Van Halen. Um, that wasn't the case. Um, the Starwood was an amazing club. Um, it was a little, what's the word? It was kind of slimy, you know, um, it was down on Santa Monica Boulevard. And, and back in the day, I mean, there were, you know, no offense to any anybody, but there were tons of hookers on street corners, and you know, the guy who owned it was um, uh, kind of a he was he was kind of a gangster type, and there was all kinds of stuff written about him. And there's a movie called Wonderland, I think it's called, with um, uh, is it Val Kilmer plays yeah. John Holmes, 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's quite a story. Exactly. All of that uh, revolves around um, Ed. I can't remember his last name, but a lot of that stuff went down to Starwood. um, And uh, I actually had a friend, Kathy Aquaviva, who later went on to become a publicist uh, at Atlantic. Um, and would set up tons of interviews from me, but she was working with the Starwood. She said she saw stuff and heard stuff that was just, you know, unbelievable. But the Starwood was amazing. I mean, um, uh, you know, Y&T played there all the time. Y&T, back then they were yesterday and today, they were huge. They had a huge fan base. Uh, Dave Manichetti, great guitar player, great, great songwriter. Um, and in fact, famously, uh, Y&T, uh, played there the night when all the Warners folks came down to see Van Halen, Mo Austin, and Ted Templeman. And um, uh, there's a pretty interesting uh, uh, little bit in my the oral narrative section uh, at the back of the book. And Dave talks about talking to Edward, whatever he was hoping would happen from you know those Warners guys coming down. Um, but there were so many other clubs. The Troubadour was fantastic. Um, Again, you're seeing all these acts, you know, Linda Ronstadt and, um, oh, my God. Jackson yeah, a lot Brown. of really famous uh, singer-songwriters got their start at the Troubadour. So that must have been a great place to go in the 70s, especially since it's such a small club. You could get really close to the band. It was really tiny, and they had a, a tiny upstairs section. And uh, Doug Weston, you know, he was uh, he was a huge part of that whole scene. Yeah, yeah, because there's no other place for those kinds of artists, right? as you say, singer-songwriters to play. Poco, you know, all those kinds of, you know, uh, California bands, you know, uh, I think the, the Eagles. Um, uh, yeah, they all played there. Uh, oh, yeah, James Taylor. Um, exactly. Yeah, Joni Mitchell played there. Yeah, a lot of great, yeah. great music. Um, Tons. Yeah, so I want to ask, you know, you mentioned... Uh, Ed or Eddie as Edward. Did he prefer to be called Edward? I just had a sense that he did because whenever I would call him or whenever he'd call, you know, he'd go, hey, Steve Edward. Oh, okay. So that's how he referred to himself. Yeah, exactly. You know, which is kind of strange because, I mean, I, you know, his voice was unmistakable. You know, it's like it's like I like he needed to remind me who who was calling me. <laughs> they did that every time. Hey, Steve Edward. You know, so he would refer to him that way. And in the book, again, I I, I write about that um, because I was I was really curious about it. Um, I, I said, "You prefer to be called Edward, don't you?" He goes, "Well, yeah, I do." You know, uh, though Alec called him Ed. You know, and then he talks about being called Ed and Eddie and, you know, how the fans, you know, w- would call him that. And he always felt like Eddie was like more like a little kid's name. And um, uh, I, I said, well, yeah, it'd be funny if I called Jed. He goes, yeah, that would, that would sound weird, you know. So, yes, he always pre- uh, uh, referred to himself as Edward. And, and as you, you mentioned, Stacey, I think any anytime somebody refers to him, you know, hi, my name is Steve, you're probably going to assume, oh, he likes to be addressed as Steve. So, yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's a, a good observation on right. your part and that you picked up on that. Um, now in the interviews that I've read uh, with him over the years in magazines, um, he could be really blunt and kind of um, disparaging of other people, um, mm. you know, but I don't think like he was 
he was he seems like he was blunt but not purposely a jerk like say Ingve Malmsteen who you also have an interesting story um about in your book um but you know he said things that in interviews that were maybe not the most diplomatic um but then there's this other kind and giving and generous side to him like when he went to um Dimebag Daryl's funeral, who was famously shot on stage, the uh, guitarist of Pantera, and Ed put his guitar into the coffin. So can you talk a little bit about his dual nature? His dual nature. Well, I, I, um, I struggled for 580 pages trying to describe um yes edward off stage edward on stage edward sort of this self-assured egoless person um and on the other side of this person who could be incredibly brutally honest um you know and, and i tried to humanize that a little bit as you so um um carefully point out Yes, Ed wasn't an avaricious type. He wasn't a vengeful type. Um, like Inve, and I write about that. Um, you know, Inve wanted to hurt because he wanted to hurt you. And I write about Richie, Richie Blackmore, and Richie Blackmore was the same way. These were just not really nice people. Edward at heart was a very, very nice, caring individual. Even Alex would tell me, Edward, Edward didn't like you. He, he told you Edward could be brutally honest. And he was that way with me a lot. I think when he would sort of, you know, mildly lashed out at these other guitar players, there was a reason he did that. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I write it again in the book you know, about Rick Derringer. Um, Edward's over at my house. I have pictures on my wall and I have a picture of Rick and me. And Ed looked at that and... Uh, he, he, he comments how Rick had stolen his solo. Rick did like the last song that Van Halen did and all these things. And I think Rick had also kind of dissed Edward. And so Edward, you know, didn't say some very nice things about him. But it's not like, um, uh, apropos of nothing, he just looked at the picture and said, oh, Rick Danger, he's not a very good guitar player. He never said that. He would never do that. Or, oh, I'm a much better guitar player player than he is. Oh, what a lousy solo that was on, uh, you know, that, that Aerosmith record. You know, he took a couple of shots at Doe uh, because Doe had insulted him early on as well. And again, when you read that little bit where, where Stephen and Joe come over to his house and play him the record and they play him the Aerosmith record and Ed makes some comments and gets his little shots in there. Yeah, but for the most part, Ed, Ed, Ed was not a vindictive guy like that. You know, he'd say things to me that were, you know, hey, man, I'm, you know, I want to work now or go home or, um, you know, oh, yeah, Steve, the guy with the glasses, you know. I, I mean, it's like he didn't mean to be insulting, but when somebody's that honest about it, uh, yeah, it, it can, comes out, can come out a little, uh, it can stain a little bit for sure. But no, I don't filter, was, right? Yeah, you know, exactly. He had none. Zero. That's exactly right. Um, yeah. Well, in the, the book, you also mentioned some of the physical attributes that maybe contributed to his virtuosity. Um, 
but I'm, there's like so much to a person that makes them who they are. Um, but in your informed opinion, what did set him apart from his peers? Boy, that's a that's such a great question and such a difficult one. Because, you know, Edward's coming up, you know, those 70s, I mean, there were some really, really good guitar players around. Um, you know, names we now know, you know, uh, George Lynch, Warren DiMartini, uh, Rusty Anderson, who has been Paul McCartney's guitar player for many years. You can, I mean, he was an incredible guitar player. Um, Terry Kilgore, who was another Pasadena guy. Um, some people say Terry was a better guitar player than uh, Edward was. Mm, um, and Randy Rhodes was his peer as well, right? Randy Rhodes, of course. Um, what set Ed apart? I think what set Ed apart, um, he, he certainly developed and orchestrated a, a language for guitar that no one else had ever heard before. Um, but it, it was something beyond that. And I, I describe it as, you know, that special thing about Edward was what you heard or you felt beneath the notes. Every note Edward ever played um, meant something. And I'm not talking about musically. It just, it just, it just touched you somehow because somehow Edward had searched around for those notes to, to create this sensation. It's, it's such a difficult thing to describe. I mean, how do you describe, you know, charisma or, or, or that, that, that soul thing? It, I've been around hundreds of the greatest guitar players who've, who've ever lived. I've only, I've only missed a couple. Eric Clapton, I've never met. Uh, Jimi Hendrix passed really before I started writing. But I mean, I was there, you know, I, I was in rooms with Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page and Blackmore and Paul Kostoff and, you know, Robin Schauer and Steve Morse and John McLaughlin. I mean, the greatest guitar players ever. And they were extraordinary guitar players. Um, and I, I, I don't know that I ever felt from any of them, maybe Jeff Beck, because I, I, I adore Jeff Beck and he is my, is and was my favorite guitar player. But these other guitar players, as amazing as they were, there was something, I don't know, internal about Edward that, that these other guys didn't have. Um, you know, and, and beyond that, you add all of that, you know, and look, he looked incredible. You know, I mean, if Ed had been 280 pounds and thinning hair, I mean, would he have had that? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, it's all those things that come together to create that, that sort yeah. of uh in, unique individual he had a great Absolutely, smile you know, yeah he looked like yeah. he was happy when he was playing guitar on stage exactly and with that it was never like oh look at me it was like hey come on up and 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 be a part of this with me and very few guitar players ever did that on stage i mean you look at guys it's always like i'm up here and you're down there and and you know never the twain shall meet you know it's mm -hmm. always you know, the rock star stage and the fan with Ed, it was never, it was never like that. You know, beyond the guitar playing, you know, he's designing his own guitars. That adds to the mythology. He's playing his own guitars. And I, again, I write about that. Only two, only other guitar players I could think of who built their own instruments and played them uh, was Brian May and Les Paul. And they would both play a part of uh, the story um, I wrote. So, I mean, it was just all these little pieces um, you know, he came up in a time when, you know, the punk thing was happening and 
here's this new voice and this new sound. I mean, the sound of this guitar, my God, you know. Uh, it, 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 there's just been nothing like that. Um, so it was just all those pieces, plus the heart and the soul of the guy and um, the way he looked, the way he moved, um, the songs, the riff he was writing, no one had ever written like that. Um, and, yeah, and, and, and certainly the band. You know, I, I've said some things in there and, you know, that may have been a bit, bit disparaging about some of those guys, but, but you know, those guys, I mean, it was the band, you know, with different guys in the band, would, would that legend have grown around him? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's that's right? a good question to to uh, put out there, because, yeah, you, you will know. never know. Well, then no. You know, you can't change the past. Now, what I loved about uh, the book, too, was your stories about you and Ed playing guitars together, which was a little unexpected for me. That is really cool. And you mentioned that you have the tapes still and you you listen to them to help inform your writing in the book. Um, and I know you have a YouTube channel. So can some of those be heard or are you keeping that to yourself? Oh, well, yes. The last thing I, I ever thought I would be doing in my life is the world's worst guitar player playing with the world's greatest <laughs> guitar player. I wasn't the worst guitar player in the world. I, I, you know, back in the day, I was actually pretty good. I had bands back then. I was writing original stuff. I was okay. You know, I, I was a better songwriter than a guitar player, but I was okay. But I knew enough that that I really, uh, I really understood guitar players. I understood how to speak to them. And I'm not talking about technically because I'm not one of those people. I can't, I can't tell you, you know, what kind of wires in a you know, 59 PAF pickup, but, but um, um, I, I, I can talk to you about, about your music and your songwriting and your approach and that kind of thing. Um, in answer to your question, Stacey, um, I, I, I do have those jams on tape and maybe they'll, maybe they'll see the light of day one day. All maybe. right. That's a good reason yeah. to subscribe to your YouTube channel. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> and uh, just just the. I hope I hope people don't confuse me with Edward playing. You know. Oh, right. Yeah, that could be a problem, huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm sure that also helped you bond and and become friends too. I mean that that was a, a I think a kind of a really special moments throughout the book when you talk about that, and as we touched on before that. Tone Chaser, your book is really raw and uncensored in some of the vulnerable moments for you, but also him, um, including like he talks about going to therapy with Valerie Bertinelli. And in, he said it was okay to record your conversations that were even off the record. So yeah. I'm wondering if there's any inner debate on whether to take some stuff out or did you leave anything out? That's a good question. To be honest, I, I, I probably put in 98% of what I had. Uh, I think there was one little conversation, um, and I'll divulge a little bit here. It, it was really more about me. I think it was right around Christmas, and for some reason I was feeling depressed, and Ed's trying to cheer me up. And it, it, you know, I mean, it was just so cool, and I just thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to keep that one for myself. But that's, that's really, pretty much all that I, that I left out. I mean. Um, you know, I mean, I may have, you know, edited out extraneous uh, parts when I was transcribing the interviews themselves, you know, if it was just, um, 
you know, uhs and ums or oh, you know, right. some response yeah. that didn't mean anything. But um, no, it's, I'd say most of it is, uh, well, absolutely, yeah, most of it is is definitely in the book. Um, yeah, yeah, I was, it was pretty honest. I mean, I wanted to, you know, include everything, and, and I thought, well, if I didn't do that, then, you know, I'm lying to myself, and I'm lying to the, to the reader, I'm lying to Edward. So, um, no, I don't think there's really much I left out, other than that little conversation. Um yeah, it's a very complete portrait, and the book is, like I said, it's massive. <laughs> it's like you have to really set it on a table to read it. It's not one you can just kind of prop up with in bed. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how long did it take to put uh, Tone Chaser together, and did you start on it before Edward passed away? Excellent question. I actually remember the day, and again, I don't know if this was a conscious thing when I told you before how I just started to write. But that day was my birthday, August 24th. Um, oh, mine's August 23rd. Oh, is it really? Yep. <laughs> oh, cool. Very cool. Virgos. Yeah. Yeah. Troubled troubled creative individuals or something. <laughs> I don't know what they are. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. So, so I started then. Um, it took me 14 months. And I don't, I don't know how long it takes other writers to write books. You know, I mean... Uh, you know, they're trying to come out with like two books a year. I, I don't know how they do that. Or, you know, some of these other Van Halen books, you know, that have come out. I don't know how long those guys took. I can tell you that I had written several books previously. Um, uh, you know, I'd written a book. Actually, my first book was a book on Jeff Beck. I wrote a book on Ozzy and uh, a book. Uh, actually, I wrote a book on Randy Rhodes, um, a book on free and bad company. I think the longest any of those books ever took was three or four months. So um, that gives you some idea. Um, it's just well, I can imagine the transcribing alone took a long time. That was a nightmare. Oh my gosh! So I have all these tapes. I thought I was a pretty good chronicler and documentarian in terms of dating things, putting places on there. Oh my God, I must have had half the tapes, cassettes I had, um, uh, had no dates on them. So what I have to do is I, I started, you know, with one thinking, oh, well, I, I have everything uh, uh, cataloged. So I started with, you know, uh, just for purposes of, of, of conversation, tape number one in, in my Van Halen, you know, uh, library. So I put that on, hoping it's the earliest. And 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 it was. And then the next one was chronological. Then there's one that, that's, that's like number three, but there's no date on it. So I'm thinking, well, maybe that's chronological. But it, go, it jumped, you know, uh, if I'm now in, you know, 1979 describing the accident and chapters two, three, and four, or whatever that might have been. I'm now back in 1985. So I have to listen to each of the interviews until yeah. I can see some trigger of the title of an album, of a song title, of him talking about something, me saying something, oh my God, that's 81, and Ed's over at my place. So yes, in terms of that, that took weeks and weeks, and trying to find that bit, and you know, I started this conversation telling you I recorded over a Joe Cocker interview and I said, live and learn. Well, I don't think I learned much because I would have part one 
of the conversation from 1981 on tape three and part two on tape 99. Oh my gosh. Wow. So, so yeah, so 14 months going back and forth. I'm at 150,000 words, which is about the length of most bios uh, Uh that you would read. That's about how long those, those are. And I'm realizing I'm not even halfway done. And I thought, well, my God, you know, who's going to read this much? And is any publisher going to be interested in a book this long? And I said, you know what? Screw it. It's my book. I'm going to write what I want. And I just kept writing. And, you know, 580 pages, it was done. Uh, I, I was done. And, um, yeah, it was 14 months. And like I said, I would literally wake up when my cat would wake me up, which is about 2 or 3 in the morning. And I'd write until sun up, sunrise, you know, till 8 or 9 in the morning. And, um yeah, I, I mean, I did that literally every day because I thought if I miss one day, you know, you know, the momentum, you know, the book dragging you along, I was gonna, I was afraid I was gonna lose that feeling, you know. Yeah, so, well, you have a through line with your writing style in the book that feels very cohesive, so I can see that you definitely worked on it on a daily basis. Thank you very much. Yeah, and, and, and that's a. That was a hard thing to do. I, I mean, you know, someone would say, well, it's you, you're writing it, you know, it, you know, it's going to come out of you. Well, yes, it is. But as you said, the through line, which is a perfect word, you know, I've created these, the feel and, and, you know, the notes and, you know, putting the little uh, bits in parentheses during the interviews and trying to explain what's happening because you're not hearing the audio. Yeah. So I have to explain to you that Edward, you know, put the guitar down and walked over you know, and, and got some potato chips or whatever to, whatever it was. Because I thought that's important. That's part of the action that you're not seeing. Um, but it, it, it was difficult to kind of keep that going. And I did do a lot of editing, you know, and maybe other writers do that as well. I don't know. But, I mean, I would come back and I'd read what I'd written and go, oh, my God, that's horrible. You know, and, and I would I'd delete it. Actually, I wish I'd kept some of those early versions, but. You know, I, I raced over Joe Cocker. What's his now? You race over early birds. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So, uh, but, you know, I, I really, I really struggled with the right word. I really worked. I really wanted every word to be perfect, you know, and, and every word is not going to be perfect. One last thing, because I was a songwriter and I love songwriters and, you know, John Lennon and Paul Simon and a song lyric and certainly, you know, this basic is much different than, than writing a book. A song lyric has to fit into a certain um, uh, amount of bars um, um, and it has to have a certain rhythm and it has to rhyme and it has to tell a story, yeah. but, but it, it does have a groove and there's a feel about it. And what I want to do is I want to write a book, you know, that was 580 pages long that was like one song lyric that was, you know, had a as you're reading it, you you felt like you could put like music behind it, and it it had like this groove to it. I mean, I really tried to do that, you know. Um, so yeah, yeah, it shows absolutely. Yeah, it's hard to put it down. Like, where do you find a breaking point? You know, it's like <laughs> it takes you a while to read it, but yeah, there's like it it just really flows so well, and it it is right. telling a story of not only one life but two lives that ran parallel for a while there. This concludes part one of the interview with Steve Rosen, author of Tone Chaser. Stay tuned for part two.
This concludes another episode of the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Remember, there's a book series, too. All the books are available in paperback, ebook, and audio via Amazon or the Rock and Roll Nightmares website. That's R-O-C-K-N-R-O-L-L-Nightmares.com. Our official theme song is She's Out for Blood by Fuzzbuster, founded by Lars Cabot. Thank you for listening.